Well, good morning, church. It's good to have you all here this morning to be together celebrating the good news of Jesus' resurrection once again. Now, this is a discipline that you all, many of you, have kept for years, of coming together among the saints. And yet, as I've gotten to know church over the years, I realized that uh, one of the spiritual gifts we haven't really raised up in our people is the spirit of party planning, right? And we probably ought to have a committee we start that's a party planning committee. People have these gifts, but sometimes they've been left uh, unused. When that's exactly what we're here to do, isn't it? To celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ. I want you to think for a moment. Today I want to go to uh, the Gospel of John, the second chapter. And I want to talk about a, a party that Jesus went to at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Uh, but it's, it, it's a story that we talk about without talking about exactly what Jesus did, which is an interesting part of his ministry that we just kind of leave out of church conversations. But I want to, to just talk specifically what, about the placement of this in John's gospel, because this is the first opportunity we get a chance to know Jesus. Chapter 1, of course, you have this idea of Jesus being the Word made flesh. An incredible chapter with so much depth, but the first scene we see Jesus at is a story of him at a wedding. And today we're going to talk about that story. So open to John 2. We'll be flipping through a, a few other passages of Scripture this morning. But let's pray as we begin our time in the Word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your gift of celebration that you've given to us that we get to be a part of every week. Around the table, around tables in our connecting point groups. Just times together that we spend that sometimes in our churches we've forgotten. So God, help us to bring that spirit again to this uh, time of, of, of celebration as a church. Help us to realize that we have much to celebrate as Christians. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, one of the key promises that the people of God have struggled to hold on to throughout the years is a belief that things are actually going to get better at some point. Because, hey, look around us. It's not all that bright to look around us and see what's going on. I mean, yesterday was a hard day, wasn't it? Especially for Longhorns fans. I'm one of those. And Rangers fans, right? And how do you celebrate in the midst of hard things going on in life? Much harder than what we saw yesterday on our televisions or perhaps at those games. Have you ever thought, though, about these symbols that show up in the Old Testament that point forward to the good news that things are actually going to be different? One of the key symbols I want to point out this morning that's shown all through Scripture to talk about the good news that's going to happen, to talk about things that are going to get better, is the symbol of wine. And you may have heard a sermon about wine before, but probably not like the one this morning. Wine in the Jewish world was a sign of God's abundance, a sign of joy, a sign of God's shalom, a sign that one day things are actually going to be different and far better than they are today. And I want to take you to a couple places in the Old Testament that really sets up this theme so I can take you back to John 2 to talk about why this symbol is so important in the words of Jesus and Jesus' first act in the Gospel of John. So turn with me if you hold that place in John 2, Isaiah, Isaiah 25. Verse 6. Each of these passages I'm about to read are passages that talk about God's future, about the people of Israel, and about the hope that we have. And there's several images, but this one shows up. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. 
So you see this image here, but I want you to flip forward to Jeremiah 31, another passage that talks about this idea of God's future, about a banquet and what's at that banquet. Jeremiah 31, verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. So when the Messiah comes, the hope is that there's going to be this huge banquet and feast, and there's going to be much wine that comes along with him. Now, this may sound strange, though, because many of us grew up in families where this kind of image really wasn't all that helpful, right? Some of us in a painful way. Some of us grew up, though, in families where uh, alcohol was not a part of the story at all, and we tried to shield our eyes from anything connected with it. I still remember uh, sitting at baseball games with my parents, and after a few of these moments where there had been a fan that had had a few too many, I became pretty embarrassed if this was going to happen again. And so honestly, as, a, as an 8 or 10-year-old, I would begin to pray these prayers when we'd enter into the stadium, God, don't let that fan be next to us. Because the chance was that mom or dad were going to speak up and say something that would embarrass us. I remember one game in specific. We were at a San Diego Chargers game, and, and we were leaving the stadium, but we found a seat right by the exit. And so we were standing there ready to leave after the game was over, and there was a guy that had had a too, few too many. I still remember exact words what my dad said. Man, you're drunk as a skunk, buddy. And it didn't get any better after that. That's not a great opener if you haven't found out. And I remember these moments in my life that really formed me in a view of God's gifts that I I began to be embarrassed about the places we would sit and the people we would be around. Tony Campolo is a Christian author that tells a story uh, about a a guy that wanted to throw a large party in a dry county, and he was struggling. How how are we going to have this fine wine that we want to have at our party with uh, being in a dry county? And so he went to the county commissioner, who happened to be a deacon in the church, And he said, hey, I'd really like to get a license just for this night. And remember, Jesus turned the water into wine. And that guy said in response, I know, and he's been an embarrassment to me ever since. I mean, we know this tension, don't we? Of living in our families, of living in sometimes the overabundance, sometimes living as alcoholics some of us have experienced in our families. And yet these images are images that Scripture continues to pick up as the good news of God's future to come. And I get it. I, I mean, I, we've, many of us have grown up in those families where we've seen abuse of alcohol or we've been abused by those who have abused alcohol. But you need to know that in the first century, abuse of alcohol wasn't an issue as much for the Jewish people. These were people that had learned what God's goodness and joy was. In fact, there was a saying in the first century, there is no rejoicing without wine. And when the Messiah came, he, he, he would bring with him all kinds of good things, aged meats, but also fine wine with him. But you have to watch what it says because there were times where there wasn't wine around. And the times where there wasn't wine around was because the wine had dried up. And there was a reason for that wine drying up that I want to talk about this morning. Actually, from Isaiah chapter 5, he, this is the image of wine that he gives, and this is the, the bad news that's brought along with it. Isaiah 5, verse 8. This is the judgment that is spoken over Israel. Woe to you who add house to house, 
and join field to fields till no space is left, and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. Isaiah is saying, look, if you treat people the way you're treating people, if you continue to oppress them and use all your funds for these kinds of things, the wine is going to one day dry up. And everyone would have known that wasn't a good thing because the future hope was a time that's full of the abundance of this gift. When things were right, the wine flowed freely in the Old Testament. But when things went wrong, it dried up. Which brings me to the story in John chapter 2 again. A story where the wine had dried up. Let's read on in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now these five words, they had no more wine, would have been some of the worst five words you can imagine hearing in this era at a wedding. Because the thing is, this was a huge thing. Not many people drank wine except for these big events at weddings. This was an event that people would have saved and scrimped the parents for years and years to make sure there was no embarrassment by running out of meat or running out of wine. But at this wedding, there's a problem, and Jesus' mother Mary sees the problem, and and she goes to Jesus and says, look, there's a problem here. This wouldn't have just been a party planning mistake. This would have been a social catastrophe. And this is what happens as the story goes on, verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Anybody heard your kids say something like that before? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So Mary tells Jesus, hey, why don't you help out here? And Jesus is like, it's not my time. But, you know, Mary didn't worry about that. She just said to the rest, just wait. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. So Jesus sees these six stone water jars. And he tells them to go and fill up these stone jars with water. And it's interesting because we think about stone jars and we think, well, yeah, it probably would have been used for anything. But it tells clearly what these stone jars are used for. It's for ceremonial washing. And what would that mean? (laughs) That would mean that all these people who'd come, who'd caked dust on their feet and on their hands on their way, on their journey to to this wedding, before they were able to engage in the ceremony, before they were able to partake of all the fun, they would go and clean their hands and wash their feet to make sure that they were ceremonially and ritually clean before the party started. Not exactly the place you want to draw water from, even if you're just drinking water. And so Jesus tells these guys, hey, take those six ceremonial washing tubs, like the the equivalent of toilet water, and and go and take it to the master. It'll all be good, okay? Just imagine being the servant in this scene, right? I mean, these are filthy jars. This isn't going to go well, but they take it to the master. And and I can just imagine the scene now, right? The master's like, what's this? I thought we were out of wine. They're like, drink up. You'll see. (laughs) But then as he drinks, what do we find? Well, we read on in verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. 
So the master discovers the wine, and it's not just any kind of wine. This is really good wine. And the servants really have no idea what he's talking about or what happened in the meantime. They're probably wondering if the master of the banquet's the reason they ran out of wine in the first place if he thinks this tastes good. But the truth is Jesus had turned the water into wine. And what the master of the banquet's saying without anyone else knowing it perhaps is that Jesus throws the best parties. Now, this seems a little uh, overboard if you're asking me because they're at the end of the party. They've run out of wine. 150 gallons. Jesus, do you really need that many to take care of these inebriated guests? And I don't know how to work through all that because I know the tension I have in my own life about this and the stories. Many of you know those stories as well. But I want you to pay attention to the final detail that happens in verse 11 as this is reflected upon. John 2 verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now I want you to catch this because this becomes really important in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John there are seven signs. And this is the first of those signs. In fact, it says it right there. And what are the signs there to show? They're to show the glory of God. Now, it's important for us to understand what a sign is. It seems obvious at first glance, right? But it's important to clear this up because signs are not the reality themselves. Signs point to another reality. Like you don't go up to the restaurant and the sign and ask for a hamburger at the sign, right? The sign points you inside to the place where you get the hamburger. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Some people think that the miracles are the point themselves. But the miracles are called signs in the Gospel of John to help people realize this isn't about the miracle. It's not even about Jesus. These signs point people to the glory of God. And if you're looking for a sign that shows of the kingdom, all of a sudden this image comes up again like it's always coming up in the Old Testament. This picture of wine in abundance being God's good gift. You see, John is one of the most symbolic writers in the Gospels. He's the one who takes all these numbers and does something with them. Like in the Gospel of John, there's these seven I am statements. And then seven shows up again in these signs. Why seven signs? Well, if you read the Jewish story, even in the beginning of the story, you begin to pick up that seven is an important number because seven tells people about perfection. It took this to perfect and create the world. This is a sign of God's goodness and his perfection. But did you notice how many stone jars there are? six. It's as if Jesus is trying to point out in the story not just what people are seeing in the moment. John pulls this into his narrative at the very beginning as if to say, yes, God's good number is seven. He perfects everything. But if you want to look around you where you'd expect to see the glory of God, you see six all around. Amos 9 talks more about this image that I want to go back to that story before we move forward in John 2. Amos 9 verse 11 tells more about this this image again. Talking about Israel's restoration in the future. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. See, part of this promise in Amos chapter 9 about new wine is a promise about what? It's a promise about a temple, right? Because the people in exile didn't have a temple. And the longing was, maybe God will one day bring us back to the land, and maybe there will be a temple. Because the first time God shows up and there's a temple, what descends on that temple? 
It's the Shekinah. It's the glory. It's the heaviness of God that comes into this place. And it is clear in that scene when they bring that temple together and they ordain it that God is present there. The question is, where is God in the midst of exile? Where is God when the temple is not a place to go to? Does he actually exist outside of these walls? Well, fast forward a few hundred years and now they've got the temple again. But what's interesting is when Jesus wants to point to the glory of God, he doesn't go into the temple. He goes to a wedding banquet, and that's the first of his signs. But if you notice what the next story is in the Gospel of John, John 3 is about the cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of the temple. It's as if Jesus going into this party, this is the Passover that Jesus is walking into. And you'll notice, the rest of the Gospel authors and writers, they don't put this story at the beginning of the, of the Gospel of John. They usually tell it at the end of the story, don't they? But John's a symbolic writer who's trying to help us understand who God is, where he's found, and he's definitely in this new one, Jesus. And what he's trying to say is, you can go to the temple and look for him there, but Jesus is turning over that party, the Passover, the biggest party of the year. Where do you find the glory of God? It's found in a wedding where the wine was dried up and God turns water into wine. This is all symbolic. John is trying to point our attention to say, the Pharisees and those in the temple, you can look there, but that's not always the place that God shows up. But if you want to throw a celebration, you want to remind people about the good news of God and what His future is like, the glory of God's first sign is shown at a wedding of all things. And it's not just in the Gospel of John that weddings show up, is it? Weddings become an important piece of the whole story. The glory of God, again, let me go back to John 2, verse 11, to remind you this. What what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. I have to wonder sometimes if Western churches and our worship are a bit anemic because we've lost this sense of celebration. I mean, have you ever noticed that when, when, when kids graduate from high school, they tend to graduate from church as well? I mean, you look at the percentages, and it's kind of astounding at the number of kids who grow up in church. It's about three out of ten that end up continuing to be faithful in their later years. And I know Christianity isn't always defined by who goes to church and who isn't, but at the same time, it's an indicator for us, isn't it? And if you were to ask them the questions, they'd probably give you all kinds of good reasons for it. Some that would be intellectual, some that would be stories about what caused harm to them in the past. Some of you have experienced these stories well as well. But if you were to dig underneath that, the stories I began to hear is, you know, I really just wanted to go have a good time, and I didn't think church was the place to do that. And what I'm wondering when I hear these stories of Jesus, and I'm reminded of this theme of celebration and party, is our kids shouldn't have to go somewhere else to have a good time. Like, church should be a place. I think we've lost this. Sometimes it's our fault in this generation that we stopped meeting at church and bringing casseroles, didn't we? I mean, we're the generation that started meeting on Sundays and then started meeting at homes. And I don't think this, it's not that this can't happen in homes, right? This needs to happen in our connecting point groups. But these celebrations are about the people of God being together and remembering what the story is all about. And sometimes we've been anemic at this because we've stopped coming together and being the community of faith together. Because I believe that Jesus throws the best parties. And if his church isn't, perhaps we've lost something. Because we bought into this idea that partying is a secular activity, as if it's just a celebration of vices. But the story of God all throughout Scripture is a story of the people of God that are remembering the story of what He has done, remembering the event that Galen talked about earlier, and celebrating the good news of its arrival. 
Most of our parties have become hedonistic, right? Become ways to kind of destroy ourselves. We party about all the strangest things. Mardi Gras on St. Patrick's Day, which I'm sure St. Patrick's just really appreciative of. In his book, Unapologetic, Francis Spufford talks about these slogans, ad slogans that have shown up on buses around the United Kingdom. In fact, show that picture right now, if you will. This is the ad campaign that's out right now. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, uh, Francis Spufford actually doesn't take objection to the word that some of us might. He doesn't say probably is the word that's the problem there. It's like Louis C.K. said some, one time, like atheists can even know that God doesn't exist. Are you sure? Have you looked everywhere? Like there's a sense in which we assume that we have all this knowledge that's not so obvious all over the place. See, the word that Francis Spufford picks out that he has a problem with is the word enjoy. Because the idea is if we could just get God and religion out of the picture, we could finally just enjoy our lives without any guilt or shame about the rest of our conduct. But I want you to look at places around the world that just decided they wanted to take God out of it. Is enjoy the normal bent of humanity? I mean, it seems like more often ourselves, if we're left to our own devices, we destroy our own lives. Without help from outside of us, enjoyment is not an obvious thing. It's almost like this, you know, first world, I can kind of pay what I need to to enjoy life and entertain myself and enjoy everything. But there's a lot of people around the world, whether they have God or not, are not enjoying life because enjoyment is not the presumption when you take God out of the picture. What I'm finding is the parties that don't put God in them, usually they're numbing us and trying to keep us from enjoying life, keep us from enjoying a hurt as well. So I don't think this is actually good news at all, that if we just take God out, then all of a sudden life could be enjoyable again because then we don't have the guilt. No, it's back to why the story was told in the first place. You know why I think John tells this story and why I think it's so important in the Gospel of John? Why does he put it so central in this story? It's because these people that are hearing this story, they know about other gods. For instance, they know about the god Dionysus. And Dionysus is the god of wine. He's the god of celebration. And what John's trying to say is, Jesus throws better parties than Dionysus ever did. The people of God actually have good things to look forward to, that all of these gifts and all of these things that God has given to us, they're actually things that go back to the pleasure that God has brought us from the beginning. This is good news. C.S. Lewis says it well in his book, Screwtape Letters. In Screwtape Letters, it's a story about an elder demon trying to speak into the life of a younger demon, about how to take Christians off the journey and enjoying life and enjoying God. And this is the quote that C.S. Lewis gives about pleasure. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy, on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is His invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research thus far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. What C.S. Lewis is trying to say is exactly what John is trying to say. And it is that Jesus threw all the good parties And our God is the God who actually provided all these good things. And within his good world, celebrating for the right reasons, within the measures that God has given us those good things, it is good to enjoy life. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, right? Like a lot is meaningless in the world, but 
It's okay to enjoy life with your wife. It's okay to enjoy food and drink. Just do it in the measure God gives it to us in the, in the forms and the ways He intends for us to receive it. Because Satan can use something that's out of bounds in ways and destroy our lives down that road. But if we remember what the story's about, we remember the God who's for our good, if we learn to celebrate parties that Jesus throws and not ones that Dionysus throws, it becomes actually good news and it becomes evangelism to the people around us. So aren't you ready for that party? This is the sign. This is the future that God tells us about. It's not just a story in John 1. He's pointing a sign to the future, and the very future that John sees is a story with a similar image. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the final two chapters of Scripture. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, I want to read verses 2 and 3. Again, this is the future that John sees, that he gets a glimpse into. I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see what the language is. It's the wedding language, isn't it? It's language of a bride. It's language of a groom. It's language of God's future. It's language of God finally getting to dwell with his people. In the same sense that a bride and a groom get to in a new way. But then the next chapter, the, the, the last five verses of the entire Bible, this is what we read in Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty, anyone thirsty this morning, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is what John is doing in his telling of the gospel story is God's good world comes through parties and celebrations. It comes when a bride and a groom covenant with one another. You see a glimpse of what God's future is all about, that one day heaven and earth will be made one, that one day God's bride, his church, will be made one with Jesus Christ. And that future hope is something we long to celebrate. One day there's going to be a table filled with all the things that God promised in Isaiah. And it won't be abused. It will only be enjoyed to the glory of God the Father. So church, may we party for all the right reasons. Like we talked about last week, may we celebrate so we can remember the story of God, not forget the pain of our lives. Because this is the future that we long for, amen? That's what we sang about earlier about heaven, when we all get to heaven. And this is the future hope that God gives in the Gospel of John, and in the last pages of Scripture. May we be the kind of people that are so winsome with our lives, that know to celebrate in all the right ways, that everyone wants to be a part of it because they can't imagine being left out. Let's pray as we close. God, we thank you so much for your good gifts. God, all week I've struggled because I've wanted to say so many caveats about this because we do see harm that's done through your good gifts. But we acknowledge that's not you that causes the harm. It's often us. It's often the evil one that works into our lives and tries to, to, to turn these parties in ways that you weren't intending them to ever be turned. So God, maybe these parties, may these celebrations, may the casseroles and the fried chicken and all the things that come together when we gather as the people of God, may they point us forward to a future hope. And may our neighbors wonder why it is that we party and we have every reason to tell them it's because there was one who came that's changed everything. God, there's no enjoyment in a life outside of you. 
That's our confession as the people who have made a commitment to you. We have found enjoyment. We have found life in you, an abundant life. So God, would you give that even more so in the days to come? And would we handle that in ways that honor you? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.